In the eight years that I taught school, one of the experiences that was mine and I assume common to all other teachers is that it's it's very satisfying, perhaps you might even say gratifying, to be asked a question and to know how to answer it, to have a student ask a question and be like, oh yeah, I've I've answered this question before, I, I can do this. And uh, the feeling is much the same when a, when a student or someone engages you in a discussion that's related to your area of, of specialty and you can give and take in the conversation and offer some additional insight and so forth. And this certainly applies not just to teachers but to, to anyone. When you're engaged in an area of your particular expertise, you know something about it and you can, you can engage in a thoughtful and meaningful conversation. Something we like about that. But the flip side of that is that it can be a bit uncomfortable when someone engages you on an issue and you have no idea what they're talking about. That's bad enough just in general terms, but all the more is it bad if you're supposed to be a teacher or an expert in the area that's, that's being discussed. You're supposed to have some special knowledge that you can bring to the table on the issue, and they're talking to you about it, and you have no idea what they're saying. If that's the case, and you're the ignorant teacher, then you want that conversation to be over just as soon as possible, or else you want to vanish into thin air, or something like that. Those of you who've taught probably know what I'm talking about, and those of you who've never taught in a classroom, you've probably experienced something similar, be it in parenting, or babysitting, or, or whatever. You're supposed to be the all-knowing grown-up in the room there to instruct young minds. And if you have no clue what they're, what they're talking about, then you're probably, you're probably ready for this conversation to be over. Now, as we turn our attention to John chapter 3 this morning, we find Jesus putting someone who is a teacher of Israel in just such a position. Jesus speaks to this teacher of Israel in his area of specialty, his area of expertise, theology. And the teacher has no idea what Jesus is talking about. He should have known, but he had no clue. So let's watch it happen, and let's learn what the teacher should have already known. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles to uh, to John chapter 3. We'll be this morning in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says... Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, 
How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, son of man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. As we consider these verses this morning, we'll consider it under two main headings. Number one, you must be born again. And number two, let the serpent point you to Jesus. Number one, you must be born again. Number two, let the serpent point you to Jesus. Now, in the passage before us, we have this exchange between Jesus and Nicodemus. You might say that this is the famous episode of Nick at Night. We don't know uh, just an incredible lot about this man, Nicodemus. He only shows up just a few times here in the Gospel of John. We know from the immediate context that he was a Pharisee. He was a ruler of the Jews, probably meaning that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling council of the Jews. And he himself was a teacher. Jesus refers to him as the teacher of Israel there in verse 10. Now, what little else we know about him also comes from from the same gospel. Later on, we find him at the end of John chapter 7, speaking up for Jesus in the midst of a gathering of the Pharisees. And he asks the question whether their law, the Jewish law, judged a man unless it first heard him and knew what he was doing. So these guys are trying to essentially try Jesus in his absence. And Nicodemus is like, hold on. Does our law actually condemn someone without hearing from him formally and knowing what he's doing? And then we see him again at the end of John, or near the end of the gospel, in John 19. And at that point, he is assisting Joseph of Arimathea in the burial of Jesus after the crucifixion. So by the end of John, we have good reason to be very hopeful about the spiritual state of Nicodemus. But he doesn't start out too well here in chapter 3. Nicodemus, it would appear, was a man who knew his Bible. He knew the Old Testament scriptures. But he didn't understand it. He knew the words, but didn't know the meaning. He was a Pharisee. He was a teacher of Israel. But yet, he did not yet grasp the elementary and fundamental points, foundational points, as to what it is to be in the kingdom of God. He sees Jesus doing these these miracles, as we saw last week in chapter 2. Jesus is up in Jerusalem there for the Passover, performing these miracles. And Nicodemus is obviously intrigued at what he's seeing. He recognizes that God must be at work in Jesus and be with Jesus in a special way in order for Jesus to be doing these miracles. And he's probably also intrigued with his teaching, what he's hearing Jesus saying to To the crowds, he knows that Jesus is a teacher, as we see in his opening words. Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he sees the signs, he hears the teachings, he's intrigued by Jesus. And obviously, as we saw last week, he's not alone in this. Back in chapter 2, verse 23, we saw that many were believing in his name, observing the signs that he was doing. But... At the same time, we saw that Jesus was not entrusting himself to them because he knew what was in man. He saw through their intellectual belief to see that they did not quite have saving faith. 
And so the crowds, and as part of the crowd, Nicodemus is intrigued by Jesus. And this, is, this has been common down throughout the ages. Many have been intrigued by Jesus. Maybe they like him, at least in some of the things that he has said or has done. Or maybe they're just curious and don't quite know what to make of Jesus. I know uh, a woman, or knew a woman, who at least as of a few years ago, explicitly rejected Christianity. But yet she said that if there was one person in all of world history that she could meet, it would be Jesus. She'd want to meet him and see what he was like, what he had to say about himself. Nicodemus wanted to meet Jesus and find out what he was like. Who is Jesus? And so he, he comes to Jesus at night, and there's probably an element of fear going on here. He doesn't want uh, people to see him. He wants to save face. doesn't want to be looked down upon or made fun of by Pharisees and the Jewish establishment for going to see Jesus. And so he tells Jesus that we know you're a teacher. We know you couldn't be doing these signs that you're doing unless God were with you. And then Jesus responds to him by saying something quite remarkable. He answers him and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, on the one hand, it might almost seem like that comes completely out of nowhere. It almost seems like Jesus is changing the subject. But there is a connection here. It's difficult to be absolutely certain, but it seems that inasmuch as Nicodemus came to Jesus to try to, to, try to feel Jesus out, to try to see if in fact he might just be the Messiah, Jesus kind of gets to the point of the matter very quickly, but nevertheless does so in a kind of an obscure way. The Jews were expecting the Messiah to come, and coupled with that, they were expecting the Messiah to set up a kingdom. And Jesus, therefore, gets to this idea of the kingdom right away. Nicodemus is kind of easing his way into the conversation to kind of, kind of get to know Jesus, kind of feel him out a little bit, and Jesus goes to the issue of the kingdom of God right away. And he tells Nicodemus something that would have been very counterintuitive to Nicodemus, namely that the kingdom of God is not a kingdom that you can enter automatically just because you're Jewish. You don't get into this kingdom by virtue of your physical birth. You only enter this kingdom by means of a new birth. Now in these words, Jesus points out something very counterintuitive both to Nicodemus and to us. He tells Nicodemus that his ethnic and religious background didn't matter. Didn't matter if he was a ruler of the Jews. Didn't matter if he was a strict Jew belonging to the, the Pharisees. Doesn't matter if you're the teacher of Israel. There's nothing that Nicodemus could do in and of himself so that he could enter into the kingdom of God. Instead, something had to be done to Nicodemus. Someone else had to act upon Nicodemus if he was going to be able to enter the kingdom of God. He had to be born again. Sure, surely Nicodemus had physical eyes to see the miracles that Jesus was doing and physical ears to hear the teaching of Jesus, but neither he nor anyone else could see the kingdom of God in the sense of entering into it unless they are born again. And obviously, as the text shows, Nicodemus is very confused by this. He may have been completely caught off guard about the direct manner in which Jesus turned the conversation away from Nicodemus's curiosity and cut straight to the issue of the kingdom and entry into the kingdom. Whatever it may have been, Nicodemus doesn't understand what's this all about, what this is all about. And so he presses 
the words of Jesus into an extreme literalism. And he says, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. In other words, what's, what's this all about, this being born again thing? Jesus answers him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is doing there in verse 5 is he is reiterating in different words and explaining what he had already said before up in verse 3. Verse 3, he had said, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. Now in verse 5, he says, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And so verse 3 and verse 5 then are, are parallel statements in which Jesus conveys the same truth, although in different words. In other words, seeing the kingdom in verse 3 is equivalent to entering the kingdom in verse 5. Being born again in verse 3 is the equivalent in verse 5 of being born of water and the Spirit. Jesus is saying, in other words, that in order to enter the kingdom of God, you have to be renewed. You have to be changed in your heart by the Holy Spirit. You have to be cleansed by the Holy Spirit, just as water cleanses that which it washes. And there's nothing new in, in Jesus saying this. The prophets of old had spoken about this renewal by the Holy Spirit. Indeed, we read those words from Ezekiel chapter 36 earlier this morning about this, this new heart that was, that was going to be given. The Lord says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe all my ordinances. This cleansing with water is pointing to the cleansing of sin. It's tied to the giving of a new heart and the giving of the Holy Spirit. Likewise, we see this in Isaiah 44, 3, where the Lord says, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my Spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And you see this, this language of the Spirit being poured out in places like Ezekiel 39, 29, Places like Joel 2, 28 and 29. Places like Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And so this, this internal renewal is necessary in order to enter the kingdom of God. And this internal renewal is accomplished by the Holy Spirit. Those who experience it are said to be born of the Spirit. Now what does this mean? It means that the Holy Spirit works within us to, to make us new. The Lord had spoken through Ezekiel of this, this removing of the heart of stone and the, the giving of a heart of flesh. Similarly, in that language about the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, the Lord had said in Jeremiah 31, 33, I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Those who experience this new birth are said to be born of the Spirit. The Spirit changes them, gives them a new heart, writes the law of God upon that heart so that now those who are made new delight to walk in the ways of God instead of rebelling against God. And those who experience the new birth are also, to be, uh, also said to be born of water, which is symbolic of, of cleansing. They are forgiven of their sins. Even as Ezekiel had said, uh, the Lord had said through Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. This is the new birth. 
This is the glorious truth that Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians 5.17, where he said, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, new things have come. Likewise, we find it in Titus 3, 4 and 5, where Paul says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. In other words, God in His grace has provided a way of salvation in which we can be made new, a way by which sins are forgiven, a way by which we are reconciled to God. God gives the Holy Spirit to His people, and the Spirit gives new life, enlightening our hearts and minds as to the truth of God's Word. The Holy Spirit creates within us faith in Jesus Christ, writes the law of God upon our hearts. And through faith in Jesus Christ, who suffered and died for our sins, then we are forgiven, justified by faith. The, the enmity that had once existed between us and God is now removed and taken away. This is all what it means to be born again, to be born of water, to be born of the Spirit. Now, unfortunately, some have understood this reference to being born of water as a reference to the ordinance of baptism, as if one is born again by virtue of baptism. That's not true. That's not what Jesus was saying here. The waters of baptism do not give new life. Verse 5 is not about baptism, but I think at the same time it would be fair to say that baptism points back to verse 5. Verse 5 doesn't point forward to baptism. Baptism instead points back to verse 5. And that is to say that though the waters of baptism by no means give new life, by no means take away sins, but nevertheless, baptism is an emblem of the fact that the person being baptized has had their sins taken away through faith. That's what we believe, is that believers are the ones who should be baptized. And therefore, as a believer, their sins are taken away. They are, in fact, cleansed. They have, in fact, been raised from their deadness in sins to live a new life in Christ. And baptism is a picture of that. That going down under the water and being raised up again is a picture, as Paul says in Romans 6, 4, that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So the statement about the necessity of being born of water is not a statement to the necessity of baptism, but it is uh, true to say, nevertheless, that baptism points back to the spiritual reality described there in verse 5. Being born of water is new life given to us by the Holy Spirit, and baptism is a picture of that. Now in verse 6, Jesus gives us a brief explanation of the necessity of new birth, when he says that that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And again, Jesus, one of, one of the things that Jesus is getting to with Nicodemus here is that you don't get into the kingdom of God by virtue of your physical birth. Don't be thinking, Nicodemus, that because you're a descendant of Abraham that you're automatically included in this by virtue of that descent. A human body and a human soul give birth to a human body and a human soul. Human nature gives birth to human nature. And mere human nature in and of itself is not able to enter the kingdom of God because we are fallen and we are sinners. In order to enter into the kingdom of God, we have to be made new. We have to be made spiritual by the Holy Spirit. And how this works is a mysterious thing. 
Jesus explains the mysterious nature of it in verse 8, where he says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now in this, Jesus is comparing the working of the Holy Spirit and giving someone a new heart and new spiritual life with the movement of the wind. There's something mysterious about it. We can't entirely understand it. We can hear the wind. We can see its effects. We can tell the direction that it's coming from, and we can tell where it's going, but we can't control it. We don't make the wind blow. And as it is with the wind, so it is also with the working of the Holy Spirit. We don't completely understand it. We don't exactly know how it happens, but yet the Holy Spirit works on the hearts of men and women so as to bring about this new birth and to give new life to us. And when it happens, as with the wind, it will be known by its effects. It's impossible that the new bestowal of life would not demonstrate itself practically by the change that is wrought within us by the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit grants someone new life. There will be an evident change, an evident difference in them. Just as you can see where the wind is blowing, so also when the Holy Spirit has given someone a new life, this will be evident. And so, please recognize here on the basis of this dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus here in these first eight verses of John 3, that something has to be done to you if you're going to enter the kingdom of God. You can't do anything to qualify yourself to enter the kingdom of God. God has to do something to you. God must work something in you if you will be saved. And consider with me for a moment the implications that that flow from this. For one, this means that each and every one of us are absolutely dependent upon God for salvation. By nature, we are born as sinners. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Adam sinned in the garden, and when his children were subsequently born, they were born, as we're told in Genesis chapter 5, they were born in his own likeness. They were born in his own image. His children received his fallen sinfulness when they were born. And on and on it has been down to the present day. We are all born into the world as sinners, and in due time we commit sins ourselves. God is holy, and evil cannot dwell with him, and we can never clean ourselves up for God. Any righteousness that we may pretend to have is but filthy rags in sight of God, because God is truly holy, and we are truly sinful. That is then a gap that we could never bridge ourselves. But thanks be to God that in his mercy, he did bridge that gap for us. He sent Christ into the world to die on the cross to take the punishment that we deserved for our sins and therefore also to give us a righteousness which we could never earn for ourselves. And whoever believes in Jesus spared the judgment, the punishment that they deserve. But our problem, however, in our passage uh, implies this, though not stating it explicitly, our problem, however, is that even with the offer of grace on the table, we wouldn't choose it if we were left to ourselves. If the choice were left completely up to us and our fallen and sinful condition, we would choose sin every day of the week over the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That's how sinful we are. That's how hard and fallen the human heart is. We're born sinners and we live in sin because we like it. And we would choose sin 
because it is natural to us and because it is what we want. Paul put it this way in Romans 8, 5 through 8. He said, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul says there that the mind that's set on the flesh is is hostile to God. And that's all of us, apart from Christ. Unless we are born again and have the Spirit of God working this within us, creating a new heart within us. We do not subject ourselves to the law of God. We're not even able, in that condition, apart from the grace of God, to subject ourselves to the law of God. This means that our only hope of being saved is for God to do something to us, to work something in us by the power of His Holy Spirit, so as to break down this hostility toward God. If God doesn't do it, it simply will not be done. Thanks be to God that He does do it. He does break down our enmity. And the way that He does it is by causing those whom He has chosen to be born again and by giving us spiritual life. This is what the theologians call regeneration. We don't cause ourselves to be born again any more than we cause ourselves to be born naturally. God is the one who causes us to be born again. And therefore James can say, James 1.18, in the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. It's because God exercises his will that we are brought forth by the word of truth. We hear the word of the gospel, and God the Holy Spirit works in connection with the proclamation of that word, creating faith in our hearts by which we lay hold on Christ. Likewise, we read the words of Peter, 1 Peter 1.3, where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's God is the one who causes us to be born again. It's God's doing. He does it by the Holy Spirit. And therefore Jesus refers here to this new birth as being born of the Spirit. And so this morning, if you are saved, praise God. You're absolutely dependent on the grace of God for your salvation. If you're here this morning and you're not saved, let me just say that you too are dependent on God for your salvation. And so we read in Romans 9 that it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. You, me, and everyone else are quite literally at the mercy of God with respect to our salvation. And if you're not saved this morning, I want you to know that the offer of the gospel stands wide open before you. Christ calls you to repent and believe. And we'll speak more about this as we, as we go along. Another implication that arises from Jesus' discussion of the new birth is that there is no room for boasting. Your salvation is completely a gift. And if you demonstrate any true godliness in your life or if you manifest the gifts of the Spirit in your life in any degree, this is the gift of God. You have nothing for which to be proud. There's no reason for you to be congratulated or praised. As we read in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? But how often, to our shame, do you and I think of ourselves as superior to others, as if because of our 
spiritual gifts or because of how godly we think we are, we, we think we're better than them. My brothers and my sisters, this ought not to be because our salvation is all of grace and therefore our reception of salvation and our living as Christians should not manifest itself in pride over others as if we had something to be proud about, but rather it should manifest itself in complete gratitude and humility toward God and also therefore humility toward one another as believers. God has made us what we are as Christians and therefore we absolutely must not be thinking of ourselves as superior to anyone else. Our Lord's teaching on the new birth means that there is no room for boasting. And a third implication of Jesus' teaching about the new birth here is that there's no room for self-deception. There in verse 8, Jesus likens the one who is born of the Spirit to the wind. Again, the wind is a mysterious thing. We can, we can hear it blowing. We can hear it howl and moan. And we can, we can see its effects. You can tell when the wind is blowing because the leaves are, were on this side of the street and now they're on the other side of the street. They, they're blown. The wind has moved them. We discern that the wind is blowing because of its effects. And Jesus says, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Again, this is mysterious. We don't understand exactly how the Spirit works in human hearts. But nevertheless, when it happens, it can be seen. It will be evident. And so what are the evidences of the new birth, the evidences that someone has indeed been born again? Well, the book of 1 John gives us several of them. And so, for instance, we're told, 1 John 5, 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. We're told in 1 John 3, 9, that no one born of God practices sin. It doesn't mean that, that those who are born again are perfectly sinless, but it does mean that the trajectory of their life is not one that is wallowing in sin or relishing sin, delighting in sin. We're told, likewise, in 1 John 2.29, that everyone who practices righteousness is born of God. 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. 1 John 5.4, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. There are certain marks, in other words, that accompany the new birth. And if you don't see them in your life, at least to some extent, then it is duly incumbent upon you to step back and ask yourself, have I truly been born again? Because, because Jesus says, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You can see when the wind blows, also it will be evident when the Spirit has worked so as to give someone a new heart. And so, uh, in saying that, I, I do understand there are some among us who have particularly tender consciences and might be prone to conclude that because we see less fruit in our lives than we would like to see or would hope to see, we may conclude that, that we're not saved. If that's you, please don't use the, the tests that are given there in 1 John to, to beat yourself up. We're told that we know we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren, just using that as an example. And you're like, well, I know I don't love brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so quite as much as I should have. I'm really, I'm really struggling with that right now. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're not a Christian. And so, and so it is with, with these other things. Everyone who practices righteousness is born of God. Well, I find in myself that I don't always practice righteousness. Does that mean that I'm not truly a Christian? That's not, that's not what John is saying here. So we don't want to use these passages in 1 John to, to beat ourselves up. John knows full well that believers still sin. 
That's why he says in 1 John 2, 1, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with Father. And so the point that I, that I would want to make here is that if you sin and you're concerned about it and your sin drives you to repentance, drives you to seek forgiveness from Christ and an earnest sincerity in your heart to, to walk with the Lord, that's a, that's a good sign. That is uh, that's good. And so don't use these passages to beat yourself up. But what all of us can do and should do is to take a reasonable and sober look at our lives on the basis of those kind of passages like I mentioned there from the book of 1 John and to see if there is any credible evidence that, in fact, we have been born again. Is there this corresponding fruit that the Holy Spirit has produced in our lives? And if you're not born again, you'll find the evidence lacking. So again, based on Jesus' words here in verse 8, there's no room for self-deception. The wind blows where it wishes, you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going, so is everyone who's born of the Spirit. And that brings us then to our second point. Let the serpent point you to Jesus. And Nicodemus, having heard this teaching of Jesus, is not understanding what Christ is telling him. And so he expresses his bewilderment there in verse 9 and asks Jesus, how can these things be? He's, he's completely out in the dark and not, not understanding these things. And notice Jesus' response. He's not terribly sympathetic to Nicodemus' ignorance. He says, are you the teacher of Israel? And you don't understand these things. Jesus had already said to him up in verse 7 that he must not be surprised at Jesus saying you must be born again. And the reason Jesus says you must not be surprised is because this is vintage Old Testament teaching here. If Nicodemus actually understood the Old Testament, which he probably knew the words, just did not quite grasp the meaning. If Nicodemus had understood what the Old Testament was really saying in those prophecies like Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31 and so on, then he would have... He would have understood what Jesus is talking about. He shouldn't have been surprised, but he was surprised. And Jesus goes on and he says that we speak of what we know and of what we have seen, and yet you all have not received our testimony. And the the you in the latter part of verse 11 there is in the plural. It's as if Christ had said, you all do not believe our testimony. And then he goes on to, to point out that his teaching concerning the new birth is is a foundational or elementary teaching. He calls it earthly. He said, if I've spoken to you about earthly things, and you don't believe something as foundational as this, how will you believe if I speak to you of these more advanced things or heavenly things? And Jesus, of course, has the ability to speak of these more advanced things, these heavenly things, because he, after all, is the one who has descended from heaven. He says, no one else has ascended into heaven and returned to earth to speak of these heavenly things. Rather, it's Christ who has descended in order to reveal them. But yet Nicodemus and the Jewish people as a whole would not believe him. Even as we saw back in chapter 1 that he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. And it's often the same in our own day, isn't it? Christ still speaks today by his word and by his spirit of earthly and heavenly things. He speaks through the reading and the preaching of his word. And many do not believe it. Praise God for those who do, but don't be discouraged when you see rampant unbelief in the world. Don't don't be discouraged or or surprised by it. The ministry of Jesus himself was met with plenty of unbelief, plenty of hard hearts. Happens still today. And as we come then to, to verses 14 and 15, 
we find that Jesus once again returns to this, this theme of life. Drawing a comparison between himself and an image from the Old Testament. He says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Now this reference to Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness is, of course, a reference back to that passage that we read together this morning in Numbers 21. When, because of their grumbling, Against God and against Moses, the Lord sent those fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the Israelites died. And the people confessed their sin to Moses, and they asked Moses to intercede with the Lord for them. And when Moses intercedes, the Lord establishes a remedy for those who had been bitten by the serpents. The Lord said, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, will live. And then in Numbers 21.9, we are told that Moses made the bronze serpent, set it on a standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Now in that episode there in the book of Numbers, God was dealing with pathetic, grumbling, bickering people who were getting what they deserved when one of those fiery serpents bit them. But still... God shows his mercy. When they cried out for mercy, God gave it to them. Moses made this bronze serpent, put it on a pole. You get bit. All you got to do is look to that bronze serpent. You look and you live. That was the remedy. And that's pretty helpful. Many people had died already because of those serpents that had bit them. But now there's a remedy. All you have to do is look to that remedy that the Lord provided. Don't worry about trying to come up with your own means and mechanism of saving yourself from snake bite. There's no need to you know, cut the X on yourself and try to suck out the poison. No need to try to develop some anti-venom serum or something like that. All you had to do is to look at the remedy that the Lord provided. And if you did, you would live. That is pretty amazing. And this then points us forward to Jesus. Because the good news that we find in John chapter 3 is that our Lord Jesus Christ is much, much better than a bronze snake. And don't let the apparent triteness of that statement throw you off. There's a comparison to be made here between the bronze serpent and Jesus. Jesus says so. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The bronze serpent served its purpose admirably there in the wilderness. It was the one prescribed remedy for, for snake bite. And that occasion when the Lord had sent that punishment among the people. And the one who looked to that bronze serpent would live and not die. And in this, it was pointing forward to Christ. As such, it was, a, it was a type, a foreshadowing of Christ pointing the way toward him, who was the greater reality to which that snake was pointing. And Christ is infinitely better and infinitely greater than a bronze snake. Now, it is interesting that on three occasions in the Gospel of John, we encounter Jesus using this language of being lifted up, we find it here in John 3, we find it later in John 8, 28, and then you find it in John 12, 32 through 34. And in every case, it is in reference to his crucifixion. The reference to being lifted up in John 12 is the most explicit. Jesus says in John 12, 32, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And then John immediately adds a comment on the statement in the next verse where he says, but he was saying this to 
indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The lifting up of Jesus is the the lifting up of him on the cross. And so it is here in John 3 as well. He talks about the Son of Man being lifted up. He's talking about the crucifixion. Serpent in the wilderness, lifted up on a pole. Even so, must the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross. And just as the servant was a means of life to the one in need who looked to it, so now Christ gives eternal life to all who believe in him. That's what verse 15 says. And I think it's worthwhile and helpful to consider the parallel between Numbers 21 and the work of Christ. In Numbers 21, we have those people who are grumbling and complaining, ultimately complaining against God for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. And God justly sends a punishment upon them in the form of the serpent. And the people acknowledge their sins, and they ask Moses to intercede. He does, and God provides a remedy. Moses makes the serpent. And whoever looks to that serpent is spared of the punishment that they deserve. And what a picture this is of ourselves and our sinfulness, and justly bringing God's wrath and curse upon ourselves. How petty we are in following our own sinful desires, rebelling against God in our hearts and in our actions and with our words. We might tend to to look back to Numbers 21 and be like, how could you be so stupid to say these things against the Lord? God brought you out of Egypt and he's provided for you daily. He's giving you manna and now you're, you're shaking your fist in God's hand and complaining and grumbling against him. How could you be so foolish? We do better to look at ourselves and in here and say, how could you be so foolish? How could you be so foolish to rebel against the Lord in all the ways that you do? And what a picture this is of the pure, undeserved grace of God toward sinful people. They deserve snakebite and worse for what they did. But yet when they sought mercy, God provided a way for their healing. And God does the same for us in Christ. We all deserve hell because of our sins. But Christ is the remedy to all that we have brought upon ourselves. Christ is lifted up so that the one who looks to him for forgiveness and new life will be forgiven. Jesus is truly much, much greater than a bronze snake. Jesus is not a remedy for snake bite. He's a remedy for something that is far more destructive and devastating. He's the remedy for all of our sins. He's the only remedy for our sins. We need no other remedy, and indeed there is no other. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And this truth operates in tandem with what Jesus had expressed earlier about being born again or being born of the Spirit. The first evidence of being born again is looking to Christ and believing in Him. As we heard earlier in 1 John 5, 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. This faith is evidence that you have been born again. Your faith is the result and the first result of being born again, and not the cause of being born again. Again, we don't cause ourselves to be born again. God is the one who does that. We are born again so that we can believe and will believe and do believe in Christ and receive eternal life through faith in Him. And so, in closing, let me just ask, how are things with you this morning? In our text, we've seen Jesus take the teacher of Israel to school and show him his ignorance about first principles of what it is to be in the kingdom of God. He taught him that unless God gives you new life, you will not enter the kingdom. And he also pointed out the way that this salvation would come. It would come by the Son of Man being lifted up, the Son of Man being crucified. 
He would be the means by which God would grant eternal life to the one who looks to him, to the one who believes in him and trusts in him. And so how are things with you? Have you looked to Christ? Even as those Israelites in the wilderness would look to that bronze serpent when they needed the grace and mercy of God. Have you looked to Christ? If you haven't done that, you're still outside the kingdom of God. You still haven't been born again because the first sign of new life is looking to the Son of Man and believing in Him. If that's you this morning, you're still in your sins and, you're, and the judgment of God awaits you. But the good news of the gospel is that you don't have to die in your sins because God has made a way of escape by sending His Son to be lifted up on the cross. And He calls you this morning in the preaching of the gospel and by His word to look to Jesus and believe in Him. He calls you to do that. He commands you to do that. In the preaching of the gospel, the Spirit and the bride say, Come. We read in Revelation twenty-two seventeen, Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. If you want life and not death, you're in the right place because you're hearing the gospel. And this gospel tells you the way of eternal life. It bids you to look to Jesus and trust in Him. There's eternal life only in Him. And He's the only remedy. So look to Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, you have been born again, you have looked to Christ, you have believed in Him, then keep looking at Him. Look nowhere else. Because we are all, as it were, daily bitten by who knows how many snakes when we're assaulted by temptations and discouragements and stumblings into sin. Thanks be to God that there is a remedy for all of that, even a better and more blessed remedy than was found in the desert. And that is Jesus Christ. The good news about Christ is that he's not just the remedy for us at the beginning of our Christian lives. Jesus is the remedy for us for all of our Christian lives. After beginning by the Spirit, we do not perfect ourselves in the flesh. We must keep looking to Jesus just as we did at the beginning of our Christian lives. And so therefore, let us all continually fix our eyes on him, as the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 12. Fix our eyes on him, him who is both the author and the perfecter of our faith. Let's give glory to him forever. Let's pray.